Hello, everybody. It's a new day. Thanks for listening to the American Cancer Society's Research Podcast Theory Lab. I'm Joe Cotter, and I'm with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. How's it going? I am doing awesome today. How are you, Joe? I'm good. I miss seeing you around the office, actually. Um, well, you not so much. My <laughs> Our guest today, I miss seeing her around the office, Becky Siegel. Better. We used to you know, get coffee in the break room, chat about this and that. And um, looking forward to getting back to those days. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Becky, less you, but certainly Becky. <laughs> I miss your aquarium, your oh. your drum set. You had a great office. Yeah. Thanks. I miss your popcorn machine. <laughs> <laughs> so Becky Siegel, right? She is kind of a kind of a rock star in this field she's the senior scientist say that again i was gonna say kind of incredible oh oh my gosh no no doubt um so okay she is our senior scientific director of surveillance research right great title it's a mouthful but she is the lead author of our cancer facts and figures publications every year the american cancer society estimates the number of new cancer cases and deaths that that will occur nationally and in each state and these figures get cited everywhere. I mean, you cannot, every time you see like an article in the New York Times where it's like, according to the American Cancer Society, X number of people will, you know, get breast cancer this year. Those figures are coming from Becky's team. It's kind of stunning, right? How useful the scale on which these things are leveraged. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I was so excited to just kind of be nosy about is how is the sausage made, right? Like this is an enormous amount of data. So Becky shared with us just all of the resources that are used, all of the people that contribute, the amount of work that goes into this set of publications, which you're right, are the most widely cited cancer statistics in the world. So I once we kind of had that inside view on how do they possibly do this, then I really wanted to know why. Who uses this information? Why do they do this every year? I mean, does it does it really change? And then because Becky has such incredible knowledge about this database, I thought it'd be fun for her to share, you know, what's something that surprised you and what's something that's hopeful and her answers are just phenomenal. So I think you're going to love listening to Becky. And then in the very end, she'll tell us how to find these resources for ourselves. They're they're freely available for anyone to use. So I'm going to go jump right in now. Hey, Becky, how are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great today. So excited to talk to you. This is going to be so fun. So if you're ready, we'll jump in. Anytime. All right. Well, I am super psyched to be one of the first to say just congratulations. This is such a monumental undertaking. And so let's tell our audience what you've done. So you and our colleagues at the American Cancer Society um, have published our newest cancer statistics, 2021, and you're the senior author. This is really wonderful. So just first off, let's just leave with congratulations. Thank you very much. I have to say it's an incredible honor to play a role in such a widely used resource as the Cancer Statistics article. So um, thank you very much. It's it's a huge uh, 
accomplishment every year to talk about the new findings and always very exciting. Ugh, well, I couldn't have said it any other way. This is an incredibly widely resourced article and such an accomplishment for you and our colleagues. Um, so I really want to help our audience who may not know about um, this publication, just kind of understand what it's all about. And so maybe we'll start with how it happened. So I know that this report is really a representation of a culmination of a huge amount of effort just to collect and compile and disseminate cancer incidence data. So I, I think the first thing I'd like to know um, and, and share with our audience is where does this data come from? Sure, we're reporting population-based cancer surveillance data that's compiled by several different agencies and organizations. The original source for incidence data is the National Cancer Institute's SEER program, as well as CDC's National Program of Cancer Registries. But we also use a consolidated data set that is a compilation of both of these sources that's disseminated by the North American Association of Central Cancer Registries, or NACER. And that data reflects almost 100% of the population in the most recent years. NACER is a nonprofit umbrella organization that helps set high standards for these data. And then the mortality data are also from CDC, uh, specifically from the National Center for Health Statistics. That's oh, really interesting. I I would assume most of us, most of our listeners, probably myself included, really had no idea that there are all of these different groups. So you mentioned an NCI program, you mentioned the CDC, you mentioned a nonprofit who are all working together to compile these statistics. So I think, first of all, that's really interesting. So it sounds like you're taking an enormous amount of data from a lot of different data sets and all of this is really interesting data around cancer. And then you're compiling it into this one report. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is the importance of it and, and the impact of it. But kind of just in general, how do you do it? I mean, how long does it take to, to write? I, it seems like you'd already be working on the one for 2022 now. Well, almost. <laughs> so it it really is a team effort. It takes a team of primarily three staff members, although many, many people across ACS are involved in this process. Um, but three of us within surveillance research typically start working on it in the summer. Um, so it takes about six months from beginning to end. And it's, it isn't just the cancer statistics article, but it's cancer facts and figures, which is um, a much larger report, much more inclusive. And then we also produce supplemental materials like an accompanying slide set, as well as data for an interactive website called the Cancer Statistics Center. So there's really a lot more that goes into it than just one scientific article. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And I want to dive into that a little more. So you are, of course, also a co-author on Cancer Facts and Figures, which 
I think it's been described as an educational companion um, for the statistic article. Is that is that an accurate way to talk about facts and figures? Yes, it is. Um, there's a lot of overlap between these two publications in terms of the tables and figures, but otherwise they're quite different. The statistics article is geared toward a clinical audience. It's published in the CA Journal, so it's more technical and also provides more of a narrative around the trends. For example, digging into the history of the erratic changes in prostate cancer incidents as they relate to PSA testing. So I would say that um, in terms of distinguishing these two publications, the statistics article provides more of a story behind the data and Cancer Facts and Figures is more of a straightforward reference piece. Okay, interesting. So if statistics is more telling the story and facts and figures is more of a reference piece if if i were really interested to dive in but from a lay perspective so if i were a cancer patient or a caregiver or survivor is there one that i would would start with over the other you would be more likely to uh, i think cancer facts and figures report would be more helpful to you because it provides more basic information on symptoms and signs of different cancers and um, basic information on treatment, on risk factors for various cancers. Um, we actually go into de those types of detail for about 20 cancer types in the report. I guess based on what you just shared that if I wanted a place to start, I might start with facts and figures, and that's a lot that that you are indicating is is within this publication that I could find out about symptoms and treatments and risk factors for lots of different cancers. So why is it so, if it's so much work, <laughs> you said it's more, more than six months of work, and it, it's also the culmination of data from lots of different organizations, so I think we could probably exponentially multiply that six months. That's just six months for you and your colleagues. Why do we do it every year? Do the, the challenges really change annually in cancer? So I guess that's that's one question I have. Let's start with that. I, I would say the main reason that these publications are so important is because there's a strong need for information on the contemporary cancer burden. So the number of cases and deaths that are expected in the current year. And the cancer surveillance data that I described earlier, those reported data lag two to four years behind the current year because of, as you mentioned, all the time that's required for data collection and compilation and vetting and dissemination. Cancer control advocates are looking for, you know, not how many cases were occurring four years ago, but they need to know how many cases are going to be diagnosed in 2021. And that's where these reports come in because we have been providing estimated cases and deaths for the current year since 1951 in the Cancer Facts and Figures report. And it's critical for cancer control planning and advocacy. These publications, I would say, um, secondarily are important because they keep an annual pulse on progress against cancer, and as well as uh, highlighting opportunities where we could do better. Like this year, um, 
we focused on the uh, improvement in treatment for non-small cell lung cancer, which is really fantastic because there hasn't been a lot of movement for that cancer in a long time. And then again, we have a lot of opportunities for cervical cancer, which is almost completely preventable, but still causes more than 4,000 deaths every year in the U.S. Okay, so I think I'm starting to understand now the, the framework, which is nested in understanding on a yearly basis how we're doing. Um, so a, a barometer in a way to say how, how are all of these things, how are our, our treatment and our mitigation efforts and our community health efforts, how are they on a year-to-year basis impacting mortality from cancer? And, and you said that that's, that's one part, which is critical for individuals who work in cancer control. So I'm wondering, I don't know that everyone who listens would know what that would mean, what what a job would be like that someone might use this data for advocacy purposes or to change something. What is that? Can you tell us a little bit more about what what that might look like? How are those people on the front lines of cancer? Sure. If if I'm understanding your question, an example would be uh, about a decade ago, we started reporting a rise in early onset colorectal cancer. And it took many years for this to be realized because overall colorectal cancer incidence and mortality have been declining for several decades. So it's uh, colorectal cancer has really been a success story in the fight against cancer. But then um, we realized uh, relatively recently that there's been actually a very concerning increase in the risk of the disease in people under 50. And so um, fast forward to 2020 and both the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force have um, changed their recommendations for colorectal cancer screening and they're now recommending that we individuals begin screening at 45 instead of 50, um, partly because of this trend that had emerged uh, much earlier. So that's um, just one small example of why it's important to keep tabs on what's happening for um, cancer incidence and mortality every year. That's a fantastic example. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about is who who would use this data on a regular basis and and think about and study these trends? And that's a fantastic example of how practitioners, right? So oncologists could use this data, individuals who are thinking about changing screening guidelines and treatment regimens. I mean, so yeah, that, that's exactly the kind of example I was hoping for. And then it, it's kind of the flip side because you said that first of all, this data is critical for cancer control and that it provides a annual snapshot of our progress and our opportunities. So within that example, you, sh- you shared a really you know, 
strong statement about how overall colorectal cancer mortality is improving, but nested within that, kind of hidden within that data that had to be pulled out, was an opportunity for early onset colorectal cancer. Is that is that a fair statement? It is exactly. And to hit on your earlier point, the audience for both of these publications is incredibly broad. Um, the information is used by researchers, by academics. Um, my daughter's in med school and told me that she uh, used cancer facts and figures <laughs> to um, to learn from as a text. So, uh, I mean, it's used by um, clinicians. It's it's used by so many people, reporters, um, and and of course the uh, ACS staff and volunteers in their work. All right, so I think I'd really love to ask you about a part of facts and figures this year that I imagine is really resonates with this broad audience because of the situation that we find ourselves in, and and that's in the middle of this unprecedented pandemic. Um, This is one of the things that I think really highlights not only the incredible impact that facts and figures have, but also your your flexibility and ability to pivot to where a need is because the 2021 Facts and Figures has this special section that's focused on COVID-19 and cancer, um, which is really wonderful. So I, I think our audience would be really keen to understand before they dive in, what did you learn? What were you able to find out and share about COVID in Facts and Figures? Well, Obviously, uh, COVID has overwhelmed our lives in every way in 2020, right? Um, And so it was very important to shine a light on how that might impact cancer patients now um, and then those in the future who have yet to be diagnosed. Unfortunately, we don't know much at all right now exactly about how the pandemic will influence cancer rates in the near or long term because, again, of the lag in data that we talked about earlier. We do know that there's been a reduced access to care for everyone other than for COVID. And so that has resulted in a reduction in cancer screening and thus new diagnoses and has also caused delays and changes in treatment. And so these disruptions are expected to cause a downstream uptick in the diagnosis of advanced stage disease, as well as um, possibly down the road um, impacting cancer mortality. We've been seeing a a long-term decline in cancer mortality, so I'm not sure that we would see you know, a flattening or an increase in mortality, but um, perhaps it would dampen the progress that we've been seeing. But there's just no way to know that that won't be quantified for several years. Um, But a lot of people are making predictions. And in fact, the National Cancer Institute has predicted a 1% increase in cancer mortality for breast and colorectal cancer over the next 10 years, which seems small, um, 
in terms of a percentage, but what that translates into is 10,000 excess deaths over the next 10 years. But again, we won't know um, for certain the impact of the pandemic for several years. Oh, wow, you, you're right, we won't know. But I think one of the things that it's important to take pause and realize is that we, we wouldn't know were it not for having the baseline data that facts and figures has been generating for years and years and years, for decades. And so we will be able to ascertain in the years and decades that come exactly what the impact of the pandemic on cancer has been and and how we could maybe pivot when the next pandemic comes. So really critical information. Exactly. And, and I would also like to give a shout out to cancer registrars who really don't get enough credit for the hard work that they do. But if it weren't for all the cancer registrars in the U.S. and across the world, none of the work that we do would be possible. Well, let's give an even bigger shout out. Tell us what a cancer registrar is. Uh, a cancer registrar typically works in a hospital and they're abstracting data from medical records into uh, enormous databases in order to track um, exactly as we're doing in these publications in order to um, track cancer incidents. They collect information like stage at diagnosis, the age of the patient, the race or ethnicity, all of that information um, is put into uh, a, an enormous database to help us understand uh, where we are with cancer, exactly like what we're talking about right now. So it just further magnifies those hours of effort that go into this facts and figures publication. It, it, it really is mind blowing the amount of um, not only people that are involved, but groups and, and efforts. So you're right, huge shout out. That's um, a really wonderful group of people to remember. So I, I think I'd really like to know, because you are so, as lead author on statistics and the facts and figures, you spend a lot of time with this data. I think it would be interesting for our listeners to know, was there anything that really surprised you about the data this year? Yeah, you would think, looking at this every year, that there wouldn't be that many surprises. But actually, um, we were excited to see the uh, actually continued record drop in cancer mortality for the second year in a row. And the reason that's a bit surprising is because um, the progress has slowed for all of the other leading causes of death. And so we've been wondering if that's going to happen for cancer as well. But in fact, the uh, decline in cancer mortality has accelerated. And that's largely because of the advances uh, in treatment for lung cancer. Lung cancer causes more deaths than breast, prostate, or colorectal cancer combined. And so even though we had long-term declines in smoking, um, lung cancer is still a major issue in this country. Almost a quarter of cancer deaths are um, lung cancer. And so this progress against uh, lung cancer is really exciting. And we've seen increases in survival for every stage of diagnosis. And that tells us that it's treatments across the board. 
So that was um, that was really nice to see. And then uh, I would also say that it was nice to see the um, stabilizing rates for liver cancer. Liver cancer uh, incidence and mortality has been increasing dramatically for many decades. And um, both have finally stabilized in men and are slowing in women. So that was also really nice to see. Oh, thanks, Becky. That is that is really interesting and fun that there is good news nested within this data and that you're able to pull that out. And, and you're right, the improvements in treatments for lung cancer and also this stabilization of liver cancer is truly something for us to be um, pleasantly surprised and happy about and I think hopeful. Um, so I have one, one more question and it, it, you may have already answered it, but is there, as you read these publications, is there a hopeful message um, this year for our readers? The hopeful message is that we have had 27 straight years of a decline in the risk of cancer death in this country. And that's absolutely something to celebrate. And what it means is that we've averted about 3.2 million cancer deaths um, over that over that 27 year period because of declines in smoking and also improvements in early detection and treatment for many cancers. So um, I think that's a very hopeful uh, message, especially against the backdrop of, again, the slowing progress for other leading causes of death. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's an incredible number of 3.2 million deaths averted and one that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. So I think that is definitely cause for celebration and reflection. And as we find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic, which no doubt has impacted cancer and, and we will wait to determine and know the outcomes, we can also, I think, have the, the positive outlook that we know what to do. We know what to do to continue to make positive strides, no matter where we find ourselves in the months and years ahead. So thank you, Becky, for this tremendous body of work for, from you and your colleagues and our, our friends in the cancer community. So my last question is probably the most important. I know our listeners are going to want to check out cancer statistics and facts and figures on their own. So how do they find them? There are absolutely uh, links on our cancer.org website. And a shortcut to that would be cancer.org backslash statistics. That will land you right on the Cancer Facts and Figures webpage, where uh, facts and figures, along with the statistics article and many other supplemental data sources, are linked. Wonderful. And one of the things that you shared is that you and your team also generate slides and images that it sounds like are also on cancer.org. So things that I could maybe download and share with friends and neighbors um, and have conversations about. Is that also where I would find that information? Yes, I, I would highly recommend um, 
the listeners check out that uh, Cancer Facts and Figures webpage because there are numerous links on there um, for a variety of different data sources. At the Cancer Statistics Center, you can also generate customizable images for use in presentations or whatever uh, purpose you might have. But there's also the slide set that's available for use as well as um, supplemental data for uh, additional state cases and deaths that a lot of our staff use um, for their more local efforts. So a lot of information there, please check it out. All right, thank you, Becky. I'm headed there now. I'm gonna see how, um, George is doing. So we appreciate all you do. Hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. You as well.